Hey, whether you enjoy listening to Breaking Down Collapse or Building Up Resilience, I think you'll also really enjoy our bonus content on Patreon. Yeah, Kellen and I take 20 minutes each week to talk about the news that's happening all around us and Collapse as it plays out. We like to have a little fun with it, but also make sure that you're aware of what's going on in the world of Collapse. We look forward to having you join us there. The link to join us on Patreon is in the episode description. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too. Like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable, too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp H-E-L-P. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Corey, it's amazing to me that we have had over 90 episodes. Do you know what number this one is? I think this is 92. That means we're only like, what, two and a half months away from hitting our two-year mark. Yeah, we started the end of September was when we started recording. I think our first episode was released very beginning of October. So yeah, about two and a half months out. Well, one thing that amazes me as I think about that is that even now there's still so much more to cover. We are frequently reached out to by those of you listening, whether it's through Reddit or Twitter or Patreon or via email. And oftentimes we receive suggestions for topics to cover. What we're talking about today is something that was already on our list, but I'm grateful to Steve who gave us a little nudge to make sure we cover this topic. And in fact, Corey, I think it would be good for you to read some of what Steve said to us in his message. Yeah, perfect. I'll read this off. And I also want to mention that Steve wasn't the first one to bring this to our attention either. I think pretty early on in the podcast, we had a couple people message us talking about why this is a big deal. And while it didn't necessarily fit at the very beginning of the podcast, I think now is a great place for it. And so, yeah, we're grateful for people for for reaching out and giving us their ideas. So uh, here's what Steve said. He said, hey, guys, just started listening about three weeks ago, and I've made it through all the free episodes, working on the Patreon stuff now. Anyway, to the point, I've been working in data systems for the better part of 20 years, 10 years in the USAF, and another 9 plus in the private sector. One topic you guys haven't really discussed at much depth is the rise of big data and the implications that will have. It really has wide-ranging impacts, 
Economic impacts and surveillance state privacy fears are relatively well known, but the exponential rise in the gathering, processing, storage of this data has a massive climate impact. They can't build data centers fast enough. They do it on cheap land with no regard for the surrounding area and use ridiculous amounts of electricity. On top of the power required for the server racks, data centers always have to be cold. This drastically increases the electricity usage as they are just big warehouses full of heat generators running 24-7. That's it in a nutshell, just something to think about. Yeah, so it's interesting to hear from Steve, who's clearly much more of an expert than we are in this, has had decades of experience. And yet, even though he reached out and you mentioned to others, Corey, have reached out to us about this topic, I think generally most people that are even collapse aware don't think of data and the exponentially increasing amounts of data as a really concerning issue, especially as it relates to environmental impacts and climate change. And so as I did some research here, I learned a lot. My head is spinning a little bit, but it was fascinating. And although I wouldn't put this at the top of my list as like concern number one for problems that we're facing, it's definitely a factor. And it's, I think, necessary for us to discuss within the umbrella of collapse. I just love knowing that there's some AI out there that knows me better than I know myself. And not only are there just massive amounts of privacy concerns with that, but also the fact that in order for them to obtain that knowledge and retain that knowledge and that information, it also has severe impacts on the environment and that it's a problem that's just growing exponentially worse. Yeah, so when we talk about data, sometimes you'll hear the term big data, and there are a lot of definitions out there, but here are a couple. One of them is big data describes the collection, processing, and availability of significant amounts of data in real time. Another says big data is a term that describes large, hard-to-manage volumes of data, both structured and unstructured. Which, by the way, Corey, do you say data or data? Honestly, it probably just depends on my mood. I think I say data more often, but I could also see myself saying data. So I don't really have a solid answer for you there. <laughs> I think I'm the same way. So it might drive some people crazy that we all switch back and forth. It's a sign of collapse. What is? That we've fallen as a society to a place where people we both use data and data <laughs> interchangeably. <laughs> I'm alarmed. At least we don't say GIF. Correct. It's GIF. I don't care what the guy who invented the word says. It's GIF. Caribbean or Caribbean? Caribbean, but the clips that you use for rock climbing are carabiners. All right. I, th I think we're going to have to continue this part of the conversation after recording. We, we, we better move on because I've got all sorts of them. There's one that, that drives my wife insane that I say. Oh, no. What is it? So I say raccoon. <laughs> you say what? Raccoon. Why would anyone say raccoon? Well, so she went to like her little mom group on Facebook and because she was so upset about it and asked, how do you say that word? Raccoon. Right. And that was the number one answer. But more people said rat-coon than raccoon, the way I say it. <laughs> I didn't know rat-coon was a thing, but anyway, we could, we could go on for hours on this. Okay. So when it comes to data data. We hear so often about the cloud and it's this kind of nebulous term. And I think in a lot of people's minds, it's just like floating around in the air that there's just data kind of up there and we have cool technology that allows us to access it. But in reality, the cloud is just a ridiculous number of servers. And we've got cables running all over the place, even across oceans on the ocean floor, which by the way, my oldest brother 
a long time ago, got a master's degree in computer science. He's worked for Amazon for like 20 years now. And most of what he talks to me about is way over my head. But he was describing just some kind of comical issues. You know, AWS, Amazon Web Servers, like so much of the internet is hosted there. But when it comes to these cables that run across the ocean floor, sometimes ships like anchors get caught on them. Apparently, they were even having issues with sharks liking to chew on them. And as I heard him describe these kind of funny problems they have with the infrastructure, it gave me a totally different view because for a long time, I had never really thought of it. And I think I was just like most people hearing the term cloud and thinking of it as just some kind of magical solution of data up in the air. And this part of the conversation, it reminds me of of John Michael Greer's book, Dark Age America. He's got an entire chapter dedicated to why he thinks the internet will be one of the first things to go and how he he doesn't think the internet has, frankly, that much shelf life left. And I think it'd be interesting to talk about that in a, in a separate episode. But if you haven't read John Michael Greer's book, I highly recommend it. It's some interesting perspectives, especially that chapter on why the internet itself is vulnerable and, and why we may not be able to rely on it for too much longer, relatively speaking. And I'll have to read that, you know, just initially, I kind of disagree. There is so much redundancy that's been built in, so many backups. You know, it's a pretty secure system, and at least from a, an infrastructure standpoint. And I haven't read it recently enough to be able to rebuttal that and convince you as to why. But I do remember reading it and thinking, yeah, I think in a lot of ways, he's he's got a decent point here. Just specifically, one thing off the top of my head is just in regards to the vast amounts of energy required to keep it running and how we know that energy, the grid, these are all things that are struggling and that will fail in the future. Now, the exact mathematics around that and, and exactly how much energy is needed and where that energy comes from. And like you said, the redundancies and how all that plays in, I'm not really sure. But like I said, we'll have to read that together at some point and do an episode on what we think. Yeah, that's something that we will talk about is the amount of energy that it takes. And when it comes to the issues regarding data, there's so much that we could discuss. You know, there's there's issues of protecting people's privacy and there's censorship and there's power imbalances between those of us who use digital services and, you know, private companies. You get questions of ownership, you know, who who has the right to certain data? You get issues of inequality in who can access data, especially when you compare, you know, wealthy and poor areas of the world. But today, our conversation will be focused a little bit more on the environmental impacts and how it relates to catabolic collapse and where we're putting our resources. But let me just start here with some fascinating numbers about how much the internet has grown. So in the year 2000, which to me, it doesn't feel like it was that long ago. There were 413 million users of the internet. If you jump to 2008, there were over a billion using the internet. By 2016, it was 3.6 billion. And now 2022, 4.95 billion people use the internet. So that was a 30-ish percent increase in just the last six years. That's incredible. And the projections are that that is only going to continue to increase exponentially. You know, you can look at a chart of the volume of data or information that's created, captured, copied, and consumed worldwide from 2010 and then projected out to 2025. And, you know, talk about an exponential curve. 
I hear about megabytes and gigabytes. Sometimes I can wrap my brain around terabytes, but they measure this in zettabytes. And just in 2020, it hit 64.2 zettabytes. And yet by 2025, the projection is 181 zettabytes. So almost doubling in five years. You talk about these numbers and all I can think about is Doc in Back to the Future saying 1.81 zettawatts. I know that's not what he says, but... I think uh, it's gigawatts, right? Isn't it 1.21 gigawatts? It's 1.21, but he says gigawatts. Oh, gigawatts. Which, fun fact, by the way, I learned this listening to another podcast. That clip in the film, someone had written the script and accidentally written it wrong. They wrote it as gigawatts on accident because that's how they thought it was pronounced. And so he read it off as gigawatts in the script and they just decided to keep it. (laughs) Well, let me give you a few more numbers that are just mind-blowing. So Google gets over 3.5 billion searches daily. That's half as many people are on the planet. Yeah, this translates into 1.2 trillion searches yearly. That's more than 40,000 search queries per second. So here as we're talking 40,000, 40,000, 40,000 every second. And what's crazy about that is that 15% of all new Google searches have never been typed before. So you're telling me 15% of those 40,000 Google searches are unique? Yes, every second. Whoa. Okay, here's another one. WhatsApp users exchange up to 65 billion messages daily. See, that's mind-blowing to me because I've heard of WhatsApp, but I've never used it or downloaded it before. 65 billion messages every day? Yeah. Incredible. I can't remember, but I think it's got like 2 billion users. Um, In 2020, every person generated 1.7 megabytes per second. When you average it out. So to put some of this in perspective, I love when huge numbers can be kind of translated into something that my mind can more fully comprehend. And if you take some of the big players on the internet, specifically Google, Amazon, Microsoft, and Facebook, they collectively store at least 1,200 petabytes. And Corey, I want to have you read a statement here that puts that into context, what that even means. A thousand gigabytes equals a terabyte, or one million megabytes. So 1,200 petabytes is 1.2 million terabytes. Putting this into perspective, a three-minute song uses about three megabytes of storage, which means that at 1,200 petabytes, those four companies alone hold enough data for 400 trillion songs, or 1.2 quadrillion minutes of music. That's more than 2.2 billion years of audio, which means if the first single-celled organisms on Earth pressed play, we'd still have a few thousand years of Elvis, the Rolling Stones, Taylor Swift, and Justin Bieber left. What's your reaction to that, Corey? I think if the first single-celled organisms had to listen to Justin Bieber for those (laughs) billions of years, we would never have evolved to the people we are today. Come on, give them a break. (laughs) Okay, so does this start to paint a picture of just how much data we're talking about? Yeah, it's absolutely wild. Even when you break it down and make those numbers easier to comprehend, it's still mind-bogglingly incomprehensible. Okay, so with all that in mind as context, the wildest part about all of it is that it's not slowing down. In fact, it's speeding up. So you might wonder why is it growing so much, and there are a lot of answers to that, but... 
you know, like using your computer or your phone, that's not the only way that internet's data is growing. You may have heard IoT or the internet of things. And, you know, we live in a time when everything is connected to the web. There are so many devices, even in a single home. You might have your appliances and your sprinkler system and the lights in your house and the baby monitor and your security cameras or whatever, even children's toys, like all these things are connected to the web. And so you think of all those inputs, all those devices needing to communicate, that's an incredible amount of data. You also get this massive increase in streaming, which saw a big jump during the pandemic. You get a lot of people working from home and video calls. You think about how, you know, I have maybe 10 photos of me as like a newborn baby, but each of my kids, I have like hundreds of photos of them and videos. You think about the rise of like AI, artificial intelligence, which is computationally intensive. It takes a lot of computational power to be able to perform those functions and algorithms. You think about things like cryptocurrency and how computationally intensive mining a cryptocurrency is. And so we get better and better overall at storing data and computing and communicating, but then we just end up using more and more. Yeah, so it sounds a lot like the Jevons paradox where we might make great strides in being able to use that computational power more efficiently, but by finding ways to be more efficient with it, we grow its scope. And by growing its scope, we end up actually using much more than what we used before we even made that advancement in efficiency. Yeah, that's spot on. And speaking of paradoxes, data itself in this huge exponential increase in data is kind of a paradox in and of itself because it's both good and bad at the same time. So think about how much data helps us, especially as we are trying to combat collapse. Like this big data and artificial intelligence and all the models and the algorithms, it all helps us to predict weather and catch trends in economic conditions and do climate research, right? When we talk about climate change and global warming, we'll think about all of the sensors and the devices and the data inputs that are measuring like temperatures in the air and water temperatures and ground temperatures and measuring greenhouse gases and ocean currents and wind speeds. There's so many inputs that we need to factor in and those are just millions of data points. You know, data allows us to keep our systems moving and operating smoothly. You think about logistics, supply chains with how complex they are. We need all the data that we can get. The growth of the internet allows us to spread information and make sure people become more informed. You know, this podcast is available because it can be accessed through these online platforms. You think about every like financial transaction that takes place, data can be collected from the movements of mobile phone users to predict the spread of infectious diseases, or it can be used to reduce waste or, or find more efficient ways to do things. It allows us to track deforestation. You know, it's almost like there's no way we stand a chance at mitigating the impacts of climate change without data. So it's a catch-22, you know, without the technological advancements that brought us data and computational power, we probably wouldn't have anthropomorphic climate change. It is awfully handy in helping us being able to figure out what's happening and how we can try and mitigate it now, but it would be 
pretty ironic not to recognize the part that it's played in getting us to where we are as well. Yeah, and the one area I'll push back from what you said is that we were burning lots of fossil fuels before we had much by way of computational ability, before we had all these servers and and the World Wide Web, right? But yeah, it it is a catch-22 in that you could claim there's so many good things and there's so much that's necessary from the data. And yet, as we're about to talk about, there's a lot of negative impacts as well. And maybe I'll push back and just ask, and I don't think either of us know the answer to this with enough time and research we could figure it out, but do you think that 150 years ago, were we emitting more greenhouse gases back then than our data centers alone do now? I think so. And again, we'd have to do the research. But in terms of all of our industrial output and all of the vehicles on the road and all of the fossil fuels that we were burning. I mean, 150 years ago, there weren't vehicles on the road. Sorry, and I guess I'm thinking of like 70 years ago. Yeah. Anyways, when it comes to the downside to all this data, you need energy in order for all these servers to operate. They've got the computations and the logic. You need energy for the storage drives that house the files and data. And all of that energy creates heat. And so you get these big data centers where there are just countless servers running 24-7, and it gets so hot that they have to use a lot of electricity to cool it down. In fact, it's about 40% of a data center's energy that's used just in cooling it. So all this energy is required. You know, a a single data center alone might consume as much energy as 30,000 citizens. And and there's a claim out there that, that if the internet were a country, it would be the fifth or sixth biggest consumer of electricity. So in the United States, data centers account for about 1.8% of electricity use. And by the way, that's tough because there's not great measurements for that. It's not necessarily reported that way. And so they have to use different methods to estimate that. But they can look at something like the largest data center that exists. It's located in Virginia And they know that it's powered by coal, by nuclear, by other sources, and only about 1% comes from renewables like wind and solar. Now you've got some companies, Google, Apple, even Microsoft, to some degree, have done a lot to use renewable energy for their data centers. But one of the main concerns is that that's energy that could be used elsewhere. And this kind of goes back to what you said about John Michael Greer's opinions You know, we're looking at potential rolling blackouts in the coming months in the U.S. There's not enough energy. Our grid isn't resilient enough to handle some of what we're going through. And yet almost 2% of our energy is going towards these data centers. Yeah, and upon hearing that number, you know, you think around 2%, 1.8%, and it, it may not feel like that's a huge number. But when you consider all of the uses for electricity in the entire United States or in the entire world. And then you picture that 1.8% of that, 150th of all the usage goes to just preserving data, processing data from the internet. And you consider how exponentially fast it's growing. To me, that is hugely concerning. And especially like you said, in a time when energy is becoming more and more of an issue, consistent, reliable energy is becoming an issue. As data centers continue to demand more and more of that power, it's taking away from other parts of the grid that could be utilizing it. 
And so one issue is just limited amount of energy and where we're using that energy. But another issue here is the amount of pollution, the amount of you know greenhouse gases that are emitted from the energy that's used for these data centers. Here are some estimates. I found this fascinating. A Google search is equivalent to five to seven grams of CO2 being emitted. An email is 20 grams of CO2. And if you CC somebody else on that email, that adds another six grams. So sending an email with somebody else CC'd, that 26 grams is like having a light bulb on for an hour. One of these estimates states that if you send about 30 emails per day for one year, that's like as much CO2 as going for a 1,000 kilometer car ride. Wow. I had never considered it that way. And you can see why, right? When we talk about this data center that's in Virginia, that is only 1% powered by renewable resources. You know, I, I don't think we think of it that way. I know, Corey, I work from home. You work from home. I'm on my computer all day sending emails and chats. And I never consider the amount of CO2 emissions that are caused from the energy needed in doing that work that I do. Yeah, and you consider that we're not just sending chats and emails. We're in Zoom calls. We're listening to YouTube music in the background, have Spotify on or whatever it is, right? We we are texting our spouse and sending video messages and, you know, all, all these things that we're doing all day, when you convert that to all this data that you're talking about, it really seems to add up pretty fast. Now, here's some good news. I'll read this. It says, though the amount of data center computing workloads has increased nearly 550% between 2010 and 2018, data center electricity consumption has only risen by 6% due to dramatic improvements in energy efficiency and storage drive density across the industry. So we are getting much more efficient. The hardware is more efficient. The software is becoming more efficient. The cooling systems for these huge data centers are becoming more efficient. But it's still an increase, right? It's not the 550% that it could have been, but it's still 6%. And we don't know at this point how much those efficiencies, those innovations will continue. So if things that are computationally intensive, like artificial intelligence outpace the efficiency gains that we're developing, then we continue to have a growing problem. It's just not growing quite as fast. Okay, so here's something that I wasn't aware of, Corey. Electricity generation in the U.S. is the second largest water consumer, and it's also the second largest emitter of greenhouse gases. So we've talked already about how energy is scarce and we're using it to power these data centers, and that using that energy for data centers is resulting in us emitting a bunch of greenhouse gases. But what we haven't talked about yet is the amount of water. And data center water consumption has a few different parts. You know, there, there's water that's consumed directly by the data center for like cooling and other purposes. There's water that's consumed indirectly by the generation of electricity for the data center. And then there's water consumed indirectly by the electricity consumption of like water and wastewater utilities that, that need to treat the water that's actually used for the data center and for electricity consumption. Does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So there's a direct consumption and an indirect consumption based on the electrical usage and other indirect sources. 
Yeah, and it's just kind of interesting because you've got to use water for much of our electricity generation, but you've also got to use electricity to treat the water like wastewater that can then be used for the data centers. Anyways, you're spot on. There's direct and indirect impacts. Yeah, so I read up a little bit on water usage by these data centers, and there's a, a couple interesting numbers. So in 2018, it was estimated that the total annual operational water footprint of U.S. data centers was 5.13 times 10 to the 8th cubic meters. So that's just shocking, right? What does that mean? <laughs> 513 billion liters of water, which comes out to, I think it was around 125 billion gallons. And that was their total annual operational footprint. There's another sort of metric that they go off of, which is probably the more important metric, which they call the WSF. It's called the water scarcity footprint. They define the water scarcity footprint as indicating the pressure exerted by consumptive water use on available freshwater within a river basin and determines the potential to deprive other societal and environmental water users from meeting their water demands. So they're saying this isn't water that's necessarily used directly for the consumption of the data center, but it's water that can no longer be used by other parties because of the data center's involvement. So it's basically collateral damage because of the data centers. And that number was double. So over a trillion liters of water, which is 250-ish billion gallons of water every year that can no longer be used by other resources because data centers are using it. Another metric, I don't know how much this will help if you understand this better in acre feet. That's a million acre feet of water. Yeah. And along those lines, I know we're talking about a lot of numbers here, but one study shows that one fifth of data center servers direct water footprint comes from moderately to highly water stressed watersheds. And nearly half of servers are fully or partially powered by power plants located within water-stressed regions. Yeah, and just to piggyback off of that, some of the reading that I did verified that as well. It said, many of the watersheds in the western U.S. exhibit high levels of water stress, which is exacerbated by data centers, direct and indirect water demands. Combined, the west and southwestern watersheds supply only 20% of direct water and 30% indirect water to data centers, while hosting approximately 20% of the nation's servers, yet 70% of the overall water scarcity footprint occurs in these two regions. So basically saying that in the southwest, while they host a relatively small number of the servers, it is there that 70% of that water scarcity footprint is happening. And it's just because this is happening in an area that's really suffering from drought. There's more chances for evaporation. The waters cannot be used as efficiently. Yes, when it comes to environmental impacts, we've discussed some of the major ones. We haven't even talked about the fact that these mega data centers are sometimes built in areas that have a direct impact on like the local biodiversity. We also haven't talked about just all of the resources, the material that's needed in building these data centers and providing all the equipment. You think about all of those servers and all the materials, the resources that are needed in order to create and maintain those. And then you add on top of that, the fact that because they want to make sure there's no data loss, you know, that websites don't go down they have major precautions in place. They have a lot of redundancy. They're backing up data on other servers. They've got additional servers that can be fired up 
if any of the servers go down. They've got these massive generators that can be turned on in case there's a power shortage. And so it's like all that it takes just to provide what's needed for these data centers to simply operate is expanded upon to make sure they're more secure. And that just requires even more resources and and even more environmental impacts. And like we talked about before, all of this is only the environmental aspect of this, right? There's so much more to big data when it comes to privacy concerns, the power that that much data about individuals who often give up that data unknowingly or even without consent, and then how that data can be used against them, not only in, you know, less nefarious ways like advertising and things like that, but by governments uh, in, a, in a more sort of big brother type of way. You think about the types of things you hear coming out of China and the idea of like social credit and how they score citizens based on what they buy in the grocery store, how healthy of a lifestyle they live. They then use that social credit to either allow them to travel or not allow them to travel or to allow them to purchase certain things or not to allow them to purchase certain things. I know there's, in some areas, a lot of facial recognition cameras kind of continually monitoring the population. At the beginning of the episode, you mentioned a potential upside to data, which was, you know, how smartphones can track if you've been close to someone who's been diagnosed with a disease. This was seen a lot with COVID-19, but that also had a lot of privacy concerns. You know, the app could trigger if you cross state lines, you know, and notify those around you or even potentially authorities that, that that had happened. And, you know, I used to be a person who didn't have a lot of worry about this type of stuff. When it came to privacy, I used to just think, oh, well, I haven't done anything wrong. So who cares if the NSA is watching me? Like I, they're not going to see anything crazy. So, you know, as long as they're stopping terrorists with this information, then I guess it's worth it. But my mind has definitely changed over the years on that aspect and, and realizing that my privacy, the expectation that I'm not being monitored or watched or that, that information about me is available to anyone, whether that be private entities, the government, it's kind of the antithesis of freedom to me is having my information be out there being bought and purchased and sold on a market to people who want to be able to use that, whether that's to make more money for themselves or for more malignant purposes. You know, when it comes to those negative consequences of big data and also the positive ones that we've discussed, the coming years and decades are going to be fascinating. You know, one thing that I have loosely followed over the last several years is the developments in quantum computing. They're still researching and developing to make quantum computing something that can take place sustainably. But a a quantum computer literally is thousands of times faster than a conventional computer. And you can only imagine in terms of what kind of AI, what kind of data security, what kind of, you know, technological advancements can take place if we can really create those kind of developments. But it's fascinating to me that the inside of a quantum computer, in order for it to work, has to be negative 460 degrees Fahrenheit. And I don't even know how you get to a temperature like that, but my guess is it takes some energy. So I think we'll see a lot of exponentials, just like we have been in the amount of data, the amount of computing power. We'll see a lot of efficiency gains, but we're also using data so much more. The internet is growing so much. There's all the devices and the internet of things and 
So, uh, you know, other aspects of collapse, other factors that we've talked about, we can see kind of what the future holds. This is one where there are a lot of concerning things on the roadmap, but there's a lot that's unknown. So I think all of this is to say, we hope you as a listener will produce the equivalent of 20 grams of CO2 to send an email to your closest friends to let them know to listen to the podcast, provide a little link in there where they can find us, or maybe use a few grams less to go leave us a review. Way to tie that in. That was beautiful. <laughs> Just a little plug there. I'm I'm grateful for the internet. What a fabulous resource. I mean, you're talking about the number of Google searches and I provide like half of those every day, right? I'm constantly Googling things. It wouldn't surprise me if, if I went back and looked and I had like a hundred Google searches a day because I'm just constantly curious. And I think back just to when I was in high school and we were like, ask Jeeves or I don't remember what it was. You would text a phone number, a question, and it would text you back a response. It was when Google wasn't widely available yet. And just to think of how far we've come just in 15 years or so. And it really is incredible to have the world at my fingertips. So I'm grateful for the chance to do this podcast and for you to be able to hear it. I'm grateful for the ability for you to reach out to me and communicate with me about your thoughts on the podcast, to be able to communicate your thoughts with others about it as well. Thanks so much for listening, for being a part of this. We really appreciate your support and we hope you have a great week. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.